HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, I'm Capri Cafaro, and this is Eat Your Heartland Out. We have a really exciting show in store for you today as I welcome best-selling author and Minnesota native J. Ryan Straddle. He's found a muse in his Midwestern roots and food as a compelling storyteller in his last three books, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, and his latest novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. J. Ryan Straddle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am, I'm going to try not to fangirl. I have all of these books uh, and really have always been uh, excited that you're out there in the ether writing about food and the Midwest. But, you know, you, you are a Minnesota native, but you live in L.A. Uh, and you've traveled quite a bit. Why decide to write about the Midwest as your novel's backdrops? Wow, so many reasons. First of all, as a kid growing up in Minnesota, I just didn't see Minnesota or the Midwest represented in culture all that much. Even in books, uh, there were a few Minnesota authors I grew up reading, but to me, there just weren't enough. And I was ecstatic whenever Minnesota <laughs> got a mention in a prominent novel. Like I remember, of course, uh, Minnesota being mentioned in the uh, near the end of The Great Gatsby, for example. A mm. Minnesota writer, Fitzgerald. But still, I thought, wow, this is great. We're on the map. We're recognized. <laughs> Somebody knows about us. And I felt growing up in Minnesota... Uh, other than the Twins winning the World Series in 87, there wasn't a lot of <laughs> uh, exposure for Minnesota. And I thought, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to write for the person I am now, and I'm going to set my stories in the Midwest. I stayed in the Midwest for college as well. I went to uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and there I strengthened that notion yeah. that the Midwest as a setting was important to me. And I thought, wow, if I ever, if I ever am so lucky uh, to write anything that people want to read, <laughs> it's going to be set where I'm from because I just feel that the people there need to be more broadly represented and the location needs to be validated. 
So when you bring the, when you brought these ideas to agents or publishers and you're like, hey, I want to write about the Midwest. I'm going to write about Minnesota and I'm not just going to write about Minnesota. I'm going to, you know, write about, you know, uh, these families that have, uh, you know, a restaurant or, you know, uh, eat, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I can never pronounce it, Ludsfix. I can never pronounce it, the, the fish. Oh, 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 oh Ludafisk. Ludafisk, thank you yeah. very much. <laughs> Uh, that, you know, from what I understand is pretty, pretty pungent, uh, mm. but sca- Scandinavian fare. I mean, you know, these are things that somebody from Minnesota may be familiar with, but, you know, might have a, a coastal publisher in New York or L.A. scratch in their head. What happened when you brought these ideas to uh, your publishers? Oh, wow. Yeah, I was really worried about that. <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't harbor any illusions that West West or East Coast publishers would care about my work at all. When I was writing Kitchens of the Great Midwest, I thought, you know, three people are going to read this book um, and, and enjoy it, perhaps. And I thought it was going to be my uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, my brother, well, four people, because my dad and then uh, my grandmother. And I was wrong. My grandmother didn't like Kitchens of the Great Midwest at all. Um, <laughs> she actually told Ouch. me. Yeah, That's she told brutal. me to my face, I will never recommend this book to anyone uh, because of the language. There's some pretty uh, salty language in that book. One that character in particular is pretty, pretty blue. And yeah, that, that was not to grandma's taste, but that said, I thought, well, at least I can get the other three right. And I wasn't thinking about writing for any kind of audience other than my mom and the people I grew up with. Uh, so I wasn't expecting any sort of exposure for this book. In fact, well, when I first sat down to start writing it, I did think there hasn't yet been a novel set within the world of Midwestern food. I better get on it. I better be the first one. And then after writing it for a few months, I realized that, wait a second, there's never been a novel set in the world of Midwestern food. Maybe there's a really good reason for that. Right. I um, mean, it's either it's either groundbreaking or a terrible idea. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> one or the other. Can't be both. Exactly. So I felt uh, oh, just delighted, just shocked that the book found readers across the country and across the globe. I think it was translated 12 times. There are some really amazing titles uh, given to it in other countries as well. Like, Oh, I, I it, have to know. The Italians retitled Kitchens of the Great Midwest as Fresh Chili for Breakfast. Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's an option. And I, it's been a while since I've read the book, but oh, all right. I, I know what they're referring. That's, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a literal I, stretch. Yeah, I know what they're referring to as well, and that's, that's that's colorful. I do like what the Brazilians called it, and that was Eva's life and recipes. That's great. Yeah, that like, is oh, great. That's, that's really good. <laughs> that's illustrative. That's that is that is a fun one. That's yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I think that that just that's a really good example of how your novels transcend the region, or you know. It, have a reach beyond people that might be from Minnesota or Ohio or someplace in the Midwest because they tell larger stories, which which I think is is one of the reasons why, you know, that the content is so compelling. But why food? I mean, you know, okay, mm. so, you know, yes, okay, the Midwest, it's where you grew up. You, you know, you have uh, strong ties there. You wanted to see, you know, yourself reflected back representation in in, uh, in writing, but then food. I mean, why use that as a storytelling tool? Wow. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's the tie that binds. Uh, but it's also, 
very specific to the northern Midwest. There are dishes mm-hmm. there that you just don't see in other places. You mentioned like one the of one them I all. can't pronounce, like the one right. I can't pronounce. Right, right. <laughs> and I hadn't seen that represented in fiction much either. But just like a lot of families, anywhere I anywhere you go in the world, um, the dinner table is where people get together. And regardless of their differences, whether it be differences in age, income, politics, religion, you can agree on food yep. quite often. <laughs> that, was everyone... the premise of, that was the premise of my cookbook, actually. So oh, I wow. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think in these times where so much of the media is telling us what we don't have in common with people, I think it's incumbent on some creators to do the opposite and think about, wait a second, we actually have a good deal more in common with the people we know than (laughs) with the people uh, all around us um, and even an awful lot of people we don't know um, than the general media would give us credit for. And we're much more complex people as well. That's another thing I wanted to get across when writing about Midwesterners is I'd seen too many depictions of them mm-hmm. uh, simplified, especially women, especially women of a certain age. And mm-hmm. I was raised by these women. I grew really tired of seeing characterizations of older Midwestern women as, you know, as either kind of simple or body. <laughs> when, right. when, when really... Uh, they're the most complex and brilliant people I've ever met. The thing is, you sometimes have to get to know them really well before they'll let you in to the depth of their experience and wisdom. Uh, they're not, at least the women I grew up with in Minnesota, were not overly emotional people or overly forthcoming people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still waters that ran extremely deep. And so as such, you had to grow up around them. You had to get, observe them over a long period of time to understand just how brilliant they are. And I really wanted to capture that in fiction. I love that. That's really poignant to me. And, you know, look, as a, as a woman from the Midwest, I totally agree. Even even as an Italian American that, you know, you may (laughs) assume that, you know, we're all emotions on our, you know, on our sleeve. I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. You know, there are a lot of women in the Midwest that are, you know, uh, overly simplified uh, and dismissed in many ways. And, and frankly, the Midwest as a region, uh, you know, which is one of the reasons that, you know, I am committed to the content that I make is because I feel the Midwest is, you know, by and large dismissed, misunderstood, you know, uh, described as flyover country, which in and of itself it, it implicitly, you know, says to the rest of the world, we don't matter, hmm. that we have nothing to offer. And and I think that, you know, when I see and I read about, you know, your books that have Midwestern representation. That's one more seat at the table that says, yes, we do matter. Um, we, you know, we do have complex stories to tell. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that using food as that backdrop and, and as a protagonist, you know, alongside the families, the individual characters is, is a really unique way to, to draw people in. Um, what about you know, you the three books that I mentioned, Kitchens, Lager Clean, and, and Saturday Night Lake Shorts, uh, Lakeside Supper Club, um, you know, they all have some similarities, and the, but there are some differences. What do you think, um, 
where do you think they they share commonalities if if you if you think they share commonalities between those three there's a thread of grief and loss that undergirds the narratives of all of those books all of those books are written to my mom uh, who passed away about a year before I published my first short story and about 10 years before my novel came out, my first published novel came out. So she never lived to see me as a published writer and she'd wanted to be a novelist herself. So I'm writing for her and to her in these books. And that is the load bearing wall of my career is honoring my mom's legacy, writing to keep her alive and writing the books she might've wanted to read, uh, <laughs> yeah. the books that she was interested in reading um, for her, wherever she is. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, all of my characters, all of my major characters in each of these books deal with family loss, a pretty profound family loss. And so trigger warning. <laughs> yep. And yeah. And because I'm still resolving it, there's no end to grief, you know, grief evolves, but it never goes away. When someone who is such a huge part of you is gone, that space where they were remains. And I write to fill that space and I write to address it. This latest book does get to letting go of loss as a theme as well. And so a different evolution of the stage of grief where it doesn't define you as much it doesn't dictate your day as fiercely as it does <laughs> closer to the loss. And when I think about these three books so far, I think about them in that light. I think they're letters to my mom and they're letters to myself, comforting myself in my time of grief. Mm, that's powerful. That's powerful stuff. And, you know, I would I would imagine that, you know, individuals that may be, sharing in those emotions, find, you know, uh, some comfort, uh, in relating to those characters, just as you, you know, are processing your emotions through writing, people process their emotions through, through reading as well. And, um, you know, I, I would be interested to, I, I'm generally just interested to, to know, you know, um, as you've got out on the road, actually, to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, you know, you have gone on tour with these books, um, you know, you meet people uh, at book signings and whatnot. What do people say to you, um, you know, when they come up and, and talk about your book, hoping that it's not your grandma saying that this is like, you know, the worst book ever? Um, you know, what are they, what kind of a reaction or emotion do you get out of people when they, when they, when you meet them out? It depends where I meet them. <laughs> In the Midwest. Fair enough. I, yeah, I do often encounter readers who are very pleased to see places they know represented in my books. Uh, and that means a lot to me because growing up in Hastings, Minnesota, I, I was convinced I would never see the name of that town <laughs> mentioned in a novel by anyone at any time. Um, and I think I've mentioned it in all three of my books now. So yeah, I, I hear from a lot of readers who are excited about the representation of specific towns and locations. And I hear from readers who are also 
expats like myself, I've lived in California for uh, 25 years now, currently live in mm-hmm. Burbank. And I'm, I'm, I miss where I'm from. And while touring uh, the West Coast or East Coast, I find that my milkshake brings other Midwesterners to the yard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, I look out into the audience and I see twins hats and Vikings shirts and uh, hats from like Indeed Brewing or Dangerous Man Brewery. And I go, okay, they're here. Yeah. And I'm so glad you came out. Yeah, you fellow native Midwesterners, wherever you currently live, wherever you currently live, wh- for whatever reason you currently live there, um, you can unify it around the support for a fellow Midwesterner. And I appreciate that. And so that's probably the thing I hear the most often is people are appreciative of my representation of the Midwest and its people. And, um, and secondarily, I think I also hear from a number of people who are, as you mentioned, going through some stage of their own grief process. And quite often uh, people who've lost parents reach out to me and Mm -hmm express appreciation for how I handle it in my books. Um, and I, I've been able to connect with readers through that too. Yeah, I, I bet, I bet. And I, you know, I, uh, appreciate the fact that, you know, your, your milkshake brings other Midwesterners <laughs> to the yard, myself included. Uh, I love that. But, uh, you know, one thing that I see oftentimes when the Midwest is, depicted in media, you know, and I, I look to, I always point to things like the Iowa caucuses, you know, sort of through that political lens where, you know, everybody and their brother goes to, you know, the Iowa state fair and they ogle the butter cows and, you know, whatever. And, and, and so there is this, you know, very, again, simplified uh, depiction of what it means to be the Midwest, but it is not the entire story. And I think that sometimes I almost feel like that, that, media comes to the Midwest and talks down to us mm-hmm. um, and tries to put the Midwest in a box um, as this, you know, very sort of uh, simplistic, homogeneous, um, you know, all-American, which, you know, reads lack of culture, lack of diversity, lack of depth, um, mm-hmm. to which it is none. And And I'm wondering... From your perspective, do you feel like you have a responsibility to rectify that in any way, to bring depth to those characters, to represent the Midwest in a way that is more refined? Um, and I mean, in the sense of like fine-tuned, uh, as opposed to this kind of almost, you know, uh, uh, cookie-cutter stereotype that is often out there. Right. The way I like to put it is, I feel I'm trying to add to the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think if I wrote with a bone to pick <laughs> or a grudge, I don't think my writing would be as effective. Um, that said, I do feel <laughs> a need to rectify certain stereotypes or flesh out characters that will defy them. But overall, I feel... I just want to be one small voice in a larger conversation. There are Mm -hmm. so many great working Midwest writers now that are also doing that, most of whom live in the Midwest. (laughs) And so they've got boots on the ground and equity in a place that I'm merely homesick for. Uh I feel I'm still writing to my Midwest self and my Midwest relatives and friends and my, um, my mom who was 
born in Fargo and lived in her life in the northern Midwest. But there are other writers who have their have spent their entire lives there and are also adding to the conversation. And yeah, I mean, uh, readers like like I mean, writers like uh, Lorna Landvik, Gretchen Anthony, Peter mm-hmm. Guy. Um, I'm glad you gave yeah. me uh, uh, some suggestions because I was just going to ask. Give us some, uh, you know, direction on good Midwestern writers to to, uh, to check out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Leif Anger, yeah. William Kent Kruger, of course. Uh, Marcy Rendon, um, Louise Erdrich. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, a household name there. But yeah, uh, the, those are just off the top of my head. I feel whenever I go to a uh, literary event in Minnesota or I'm booking one. I often am in conversation with a local author and there's so many choices. <laughs> I feel so lucky to have met so many and to be aware of their wonderful books. I wish this, ex- uh, this had existed when I was a kid. I mean, some stores now have Midwest fiction sections. And oh, wow. I, I don't want to rest until every store does. <laughs> um, and I, I hope other writers agree with me that this is a section of the country that I agree with you needs to be broadened in in the public sense of awareness. Yeah. And it is a really frustrating time of year to be a Midwesterner, you know, the primary (laughs) season and just see the usual steps being taken that happen every four years, uh, the same locations, the same grandstanding and insincerity. Um, And you're right. I, I know people like the ones you describe, but in my experience, they're they're a minority. Um, and so many people I know are such kind, wise, brilliant people in Minnesota and are so quiet about it. They're never going to go to the state fair and willingly stand in front of a microphone and be interviewed by yeah. CNN or whomever. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll, and, and, and if they were, they wouldn't say anything uh, pithy or <laughs> concise or um, uh, provocative enough to get aired. They would be yep. honest. And I don't know how well that sells ad time. <laughs> and so I feel it's imperative upon us novelists and nonfiction writers who chronicle the Midwest to get that honesty and to capture those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many, I, I it, it motivates me every day, um, all the people that I've had an opportunity to speak with uh, in this capacity and others across Ohio and across the Midwestern region. I mean, they are such inspiring individuals, you know, from, uh, you know, whether they're small family farmers or James Beard award-winning chefs. I mean, we have it mm-hmm. all. Um, and they all bring, and we, they, each one of these individuals brings something very special um, and unique to the conversation, to the table, to the region, to our collective identity. Um, You know, I'm on a mission. It sounds like you are very much on a mission with your writing. And so I got to ask, what is, what is your mindset when you put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keyboard? What is the mindset when you're writing? Well, thanks so much for asking. Um, I feel I try to write from as generous a place as possible. What do you mean by generous? Like I sit down in front of my computer and I just open my heart. 
like that's when I do my best writing. Um, when I'm sitting there and feeling tremendously empathetic and open to the world and to people. Like if, and, and I have almost never am able to start that way when I sit down and open the laptop, open Microsoft Word. That's not my default. I'm as full of tension and anxiety as any writer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you perceive the world looking for details to plunder and explore and inquire after to make sense of this existence. And it's tremendously exhausting, if not corrosive. <laughs> That's it's, one way uh, to put it. Yeah. And so doing a factory reset on myself and sitting kind of meditatively for a while in a quiet room and thinking about how grateful I am to be here and how deeply I love the people in my life and how deeply I love where I'm from and sit down with that and start from there. Start from describing like the most ordinary thing you'd see in the Midwest every day and the most shockingly descriptive and beautiful way possible. I, I, and I may not even use that description because it might not be in the voice of the character. That's one thing I, uh, I, I edit manuscripts sometimes as a quick aside. And uh, one of the notes I give most often is this is the writer talking and not the character. <laughs> the really beautiful sentences but this is something that this human being would not say. Um, and so when getting into the mind of a character, I try to filter their experiences and their perspective through that lens too. I want to mm. write about good people who are hopeful in spite of their life circumstances. Because to me, that was the hardest thing to feel in the throes of grief was... Like, just how do I get to tomorrow? So I wanted to write about people who find a reason to do that. And it might be a really small reason or a reason only significant to them. But it's, it's worth asking. Like, I find I proceed through questions. I don't, when I sit down, I don't have an argument I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything or uh, picking a, uh, a fight or a trying to absolve a grudge, I feel I'm asking questions and I'm putting these characters out in the world to find the answers for me. Uh, I'm sending them out on a mission to heal themselves. And it's because I need it. <laughs> and so if I sit down and I start writing from this generous place, if I start writing from a full heart, they're better equipped for it. Mm -hmm. They're more dilated to the possibilities of the world than I am. And they can teach me something. Wow, that's that's that is beautiful. I mean, it sounds like, you know, your writing comes from a lived experience, so internally and externally, if you will, uh, that sort of emotional lived experience, as well as that experience out in the world. Um, but you have to have to do some research as well. Not everything can oh, come yeah. from within or from your lived experience. Uh, how much research do you do when you sit down to write? Or before you sit down to write. <laughs> right. I tend not to do a lot before I sit down because the characters dictate the research I need to do. So, for example, in my second book, 
there was a group of women in their 70s and 80s who operate a brewery or take over the operation of a brewery. None of them have brewed beer before, but they're enthusiastic about it. And so they have that going for them. <laughs> I felt the same oh, way about good. myself. Yeah, I felt <laughs> the same way about myself, like writing a novel. It's like, I've never done this before, but I'm enthusiastic about it. So that, that, that's, that's a good place. That's the story of my life. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Yeah, showing up and being eager. That's yeah, two-thirds of the battle. Uh, so they've got that. They show up for work on time, and they're happy to be there, and they're eager to get started. But one of the characters wants to make chocolate stout, and I've never made it. But I know people who have. So when I got to that part of the book, I went to a brewery. I went to actually Frogtown Brewing in Atwater Village, California, and asked them, what's a beginner's mistake for a chocolate stout? I didn't know I'd be asking that question the day before, but that character needed to know that. That character, I felt, you know, to be honest, wouldn't nail it the first try any more than I would, any more than most people would. Right. But, I, but, I, but she was well-directed, and had that eagerness to get it right. So I thought, what's an honest beginner's mistake with chocolate stout? So most of the time my research is oriented like that. The needs of the character dictate what research I acquire. Uh, what information gets passed under the reader is simply the information they need at the time. So mm-hmm. while I'll do a little bit of on-the-boots research to get a, a sense of the setting... For example, I went to several breweries before starting just to get an idea of the layout of the brewery and its operations. So when the characters are moving around this space, I can orient the reader within it. So there's nothing more disorienting to a reader than not knowing where the character is. Right. A character's too internal, but you don't know where they're standing when they're thinking these things. I, I don't like to do that. I like to ground my readers in myself in a setting that's very tangible. So there's a certain amount of research that goes into just the setting and the operations of that setting. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. But other than that, when it comes to plot points, I try not to let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll troubleshoot later. And sometimes I have to retcon my work, as I put it. Like I have to go back and change whole swaths because I was wrong. Like, all right, mm. okay, that's okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make, make that adjustment. Because there's no substitute for getting that first draft done. And in my experience, there, there had been, I think when I wrote my first unpublished, unpublishable novel before Kitchens, there was no bigger obstacle to completing the first draft than becoming enamored with your research. So since then, I've mm. adopted the philosophy I do now, which is, uh, or the philosophy I employ now, which is research as needed. When, when the character of the situation requires it and not until then. That's so, that's so interesting because I feel like not everyone can do that, can employ that methodology. I, you no. know, I mean, I'm just listening to this and I'm like, how, I, how can you let the characters guide you when you're making them up? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're writing their story. It's such, a, it's such a fascinating concept to me just as a layperson, um, which is why, you know, you're the novelist and I'm not, of, you know, this concept of enabling the characters to develop organically as opposed to, you know, having this very rigid 
view of, you know, what you were going to create as a character. Right. Well, you have to know what your story is about. Is it about beer or is it about loss? If it's about beer, do all the research you want. Like load the book full of facts about beer. But if it's about loss, then the beer information is secondary and comes in as needed. So that as makes such, a very good point. <laughs> I always try. I always try to get a handle on the themes of my book before I start writing. So I know that I'm oriented towards buttressing those themes and not filling my head with information <laughs> right. that will likely bore the reader. Well, and, and it clutters your thought process too. You know, you're, if you're going to be sitting there thinking about the t- kind of tanks that are in the brewery and, yeah. you know, whether or not you're getting, you know, these, you know, very granular specifics, right, then you're not going to have that space for your characters to grow. You're right. And that information is enticing because it feels like work. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, as someone that spends a lot of time researching, I totally feel you on that. So what what themes are brewing for your for your next endeavor? Wow. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable talking about it yet. That's fair. They'll be in concert with some of the themes I've explored so far. I'll work in some new ones, but my central <laughs> theme of grief and loss will probably still be there. It's hard to, well, it's hard not, I I think I'm only ever going to write to my mom. Um, And that to me implies that theme or those themes profoundly. But like I said, I want to explore this relationship with a dead parent through different lenses over time. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't simply want to write about characters that have lost a parent or lost a child. Um, I want to write about different perspectives on loss and and distance from it. Mm-hmm. How time and physical slash geographical distance evolve loss, or how it sneaks up on you, even when you <laughs> even when you think you've avoided it. Yeah, even when you've taken pains to extinguish those quotidian reminders of it. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll find you at Walgreens. Like, yeah. a, like a song by Peter Gabriel comes on when you're buying NyQuil and then you're back in it again. Uh, I, I hear you. Um, and and I, I'm curious to ask, you know, you'd said at the beginning of, of our conversation about how, you know, that um, your characters, you know, they're there to, to you know, teach you something. Uh, and to, you know, paraphrase you, uh, you know, terribly. But uh, I'm wondering that, you know, now that you've done a few of these novels with, uh, you know, some of these shared themes of grief and loss, do you feel that the characters that you've written about have opened yourself up to these new chapters, pun intended, of, um, you know, how you are, you know, going to explore grief and loss in different ways? Did they, did these characters teach you something different as you learn about yourself that you're going to bring into these to your next writings. Yeah, I believe so. It's hard for me to get a handle on that sometimes. Um, it feels like work that you do in therapy where it's never completely done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel a little like a county sheriff saying, I can't comment on 
on a crime that's under investigation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like, oh, it's such an evolving process that it's, it's difficult to say, but I do feel that, yes, I've, I've learned and progressed through these books. And they forced me to think about grief more directly and to reckon with it, uh, to take it on. For about 10 years after my mom died, I really tried to put it behind me and ignore it. So one of the reasons I set out to write the debut novel I did, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, was to address it directly. I had a writing instructor at UCLA Extension named Lou Matthews, who had been reading my early, less substantive, <laughs> less deep work, <laughs> and told me, once you start writing about things you care about, your work's going to get a lot better. And I really took that to heart. I think that was what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. Um, and he was right. I felt when I started thinking about the things I was afraid of, I realized that writing could be more than amusing, that it could say something, it could be powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, this conversation has been powerful to me and I'm sure powerful to our audience as well. You got a promise for your next, your next endeavor. You, we're, you're going to come back on this show because we want to hear all about you know, whatever you have next uh, on the horizon. Oh, thank you. I, I, I can't wait to share it. And thanks again for having me on. <laughs> well, we, are, we really uh, are honored and um, we, we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks again. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.